awareness is all we need to change habits, whether it's anxiety or any other habit. So we need to become aware of a habit loop. We need to map out the trigger, the behavior, the result. But we also need to tap into this reward value system in our brain because our brain is going to keep doing a habit until it sees very clearly that that behavior is not rewarding, right? Because it lays down this reward value and says, oh, that's good. Just do it again. But if we bring awareness in, we can see, oh, that's not quite as good as I remembered. So for example, with my patient, he paid attention to stress eating and he realized, oh, it's not getting me anything. And he became disenchanted with it. And that disenchantment is really the key driver for changing any habit. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Feeling Full Podcast. I'm Mordecai, an entrepreneur and coach who struggled with being overweight for nearly two decades. But since 2012, I've lost 130 pounds and have kept it off. Join me and my guest today to discover how it's possible and even simple to lose weight with ease, without dieting and without intense workouts. If you're ready to give up quick fixes and fad diets and build a fulfilling relationship with your body and food, then this show is for you. Today, our guest is Dr. Judd Brewer. Judson Brewer is an internationally known thought leader in the field of habit change and the science of self-mastery. He's an internationally renowned addiction psychiatrist and neuroscientist. Dr. Judd is a director of research and innovation at the Mindfulness Center, and he's an associate professor in psychiatry at the School of Medicine at Brown University. He's written two incredible books, his first book, Craving Mind, Why We Get Hooked and How We Can Break Bad Habits. And his latest book, Unwinding Anxiety, is a book all about how to break the cycle of worrying and fear to heal your mind. His TED Talk, A Simple Way to Break a Bad Habit, has over 16 million views on YouTube. In our conversation today, Dr. Judd shares how our brains are wired. He breaks down why we crave things and how people can get addicted to technology, food, thinking thoughts, and everything in between. Dr. Judd is a big believer in the power of using awareness and curiosity as ways to work through addiction and cravings and to help break bad habits. Thanks for listening, and let's jump right in. Welcome, Judd, to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. Honestly, I think I'm feeling a little bit nervous interviewing you. I just been, you know, reading your books and studying all your stuff. I mean, it's you've gone real deep into addiction um, more than most. And um, I'm excited about this conversation. Oh, good. And if, if you're a little anxious, I have a book about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to download your app real quick. Then you know, I get, a, get, get the help that I need real quick right now. So I'm really curious if you can give us a little background where did your passion for addiction come from? It's something that feels like a really intentional thing. Was there a story in your life that where you decided addiction is something that I'm going to pursue and for these reasons? It came actually toward the end of medical school, maybe even in residency. I'd gone through medical school. I did this MD-PhD program where I was actually studying stress in the immune system. I was really interested in why we get sick when we get stressed out. And so I was doing all this animal work and doing all this genetic work and all, all things like that. And then when I finished medical school and finished my PhD and started my residency in psychiatry, I was actually prompted to go into psychiatry because of the overlaps I saw between my own personal meditation practice. Oh, by the way, I started meditating my first day of medical school, right? Just as a way to relieve stress. And so after about eight years, I was seeing some really clear overlaps between what the Buddhist psychologists were talking about in terms of the causes of suffering, and also what my patients were talking about in terms of their own stress. And in particular, my, the folks that I worked with with addictions were 
really speaking the same language as the Buddhist. And also there was something that I just really, I don't know, really drew me to working with this population because just so underserved, they tend to be marginalized. They tend to beat themselves up and there really aren't very many good treatments for addictions. So that piece got me really interested. And then what, what really sealed the deal was when I really started learning a lot more about addiction and I realized, oh my gosh, I've got all these addictions that I didn't even know about because they weren't the classic ones. That's really interesting to me. So I'm just curious, what kind of addictions did you discover you had? Well, socially acceptable ones. One was around... (laughs) I'll start with those. (laughs) Yeah, one was around exercise. I used to have to exercise every day and literally it was have to. I would get irritable when I couldn't. I would spend time planning for exercise. Basically, you could check off the the checklist around, you know, the addiction manual. And I was really doing all of these things around exercise. And I hadn't even noticed that, you know, that was just when I ended up writing a bunch of different chapters in my first book, The Craving Mind, about, you know, addicted to thinking, addicted to self, addicted to, you know, this and that. So another addiction was just addicted to thinking, you know, it's just my brain. (laughs) Just love to think, and it would get me into all sorts of problems and down, you know, rabbit holes that were ended up wasting a lot of time. It's so interesting how there's like, you know, these socially acceptable addictions, which are, you know, thinking and our technology and things that people don't, you know, bat an eyelid at. But then there's other addictions that are looked at as something's wrong with the person. Somebody has an addiction to alcohol, drugs, food, whatever it is. There's something. Like that person doesn't have enough willpower to overcome their addictions. If somebody has an addiction, an addictive tendencies in them, how do you think about the idea of like what what makes that addiction any worse than another addiction? It's a great question. So I would say here, we all have addictive tendencies. And so this nobody is exempt from this, you know, and I think often it's easy to kind of say, oh, that person has a problem so that we can. (laughs) separate ourselves or make ourselves feel better. There are a bunch of psychological reasons that people do that, you know, that othering thing. But really, we're all in this together because this is based in our basic physiology, our survival mechanism. So that's the first thing I would say. And I think one way to think about this is this very simple definition of addiction that I learned in residency is this, continued use despite adverse consequences. And so it's not really that one type of addiction is worse than another. It's that adverse consequences piece. So for example, texting when driving has now been shown to be more dangerous than drunk driving. So is texting an addiction? Well, if it causes adverse consequences, absolutely. Is it worse than alcohol, you know, driving drunk? Yes, it is. And so here it's not about the thing itself. It's about the consequences, you know, that continued use despite adverse consequences. That's super interesting because I think about food and I, it's, it's, it's a dilemma I've had often in a conversation I've engaged in many times, which is, can food be an addiction? Because we always, we always got to eat. And that's the difference between food addictions, if they're addictions, right? But food and other addictions is where you don't have to drink alcohol. You don't have to use crack. But when it comes to food, you're going to be eating you know, at least three times a day and you're going to be making choices throughout the day of what foods you're going to be eating. So how do you think about addiction when it comes to food? Because certain foods are, as we both know, are addictive. Yes. So it's interesting you mentioned this because when I did my started my research, you know, I was first doing 
studies with like alcohol use disorder, cocaine use disorder, with uh, nicotine use disorder. And it seemed, you know, easier to work with. Well, easier is one way of putting it because nicotine is pretty addictive. Yet I saw just exactly what you're talking about, whereas people didn't need to smoke to survive. In fact, it was antithetical to survival. Yet we all have to eat. And so here it's really, it helped me zoom in on the relationship to what's happening. And so with food, it can help us survive, yet food is now designed specifically. I wouldn't even call it food. These food-like objects are designed to be addictive, to basically jack the dopamine system in the same way that coca leaves are refined to, to get cocaine, that uh, nicotine is extracted from tobacco leaves to, you know, to, for vaping and things like that. I'd love for you to expand on that a little bit. Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to. So here... If you look at food, if I eat, I'll use a personal example, okay? So working with my own addiction, another one, (laughs) Uh, gummy worms, okay? I couldn't keep a bag of gummy worms in the house because I would just eat them all. And so I figured, well, might as well eat the whole bag and it's going to be ugly tonight, but at least I might wake up kind of feeling groggy, but at least they'll be out of the house. So gummy worms are these things that are designed to make us want to eat more. You know, what's the potato chip slogan? You know, bet you can't just eat one. Right. The parenthetical phrase there is because we designed them that way. (laughs) So if you look at food, it can, in the way that we design and engineer food-like objects, that's probably sounds too extreme. So let's say the way that food is designed. On modern day food. Yes, our modern day food is designed to be addictive. And, and there's a lot of evidence showing that it, it fires off the same dopamine pathways as you know, any drug of abuse. So in this sense, if you just look at the dopamine, you know, if you just said, oh, something happened in this person, they ingested something, you can see that cocaine causes dopamine to increase in the synapses through blocking the dopamine transporter. And you can see that Food causes uh, dopamine to increase in the synapses. So in that sense, it's no different from a brain perspective. It's no different. So, I mean, like you, like you said, you, you were addicted to gummy worms. So I used to be addicted to any type of sweet sugar candy. Like candy used to be like a thing for me. Cake used to be a thing. Lots of things like that. But today, I think I've come to a place where I can overeat on tomatoes. I know that seems silly to most, but I can overeat on tomatoes because they're really sweet. I don't eat a lot of sweet foods. And the same thing with blueberries. I can overeat on like frozen blueberries is like pound the frozen blueberries in my freezer. There's a good chance if I'm feeling triggered, I can get into that. It doesn't feel necessarily like a healthy relationship to the food. So with that, under the idea that an addiction is a, what, what was the terminology that you used again? Continued use despite adverse consequences. So continue, uh, continued use, I'm using blueberries uh, despite the adverse consequences that I'm overeating too much. Yeah. I know it sounds crazy to most, but like... Yeah, so that could certainly sound crazy. And it's interesting that you mentioned blueberries because that was one thing that helped me see how addictive gummy worms were for me. And so, well, maybe you could answer this. So over, let's come back to the overeating piece because that can be an addictive behavior as compared to the food itself. So there can be a food that's addictive, like gummy worms. And for me, I would notice, so I would compare eating gummy worms versus eating blueberries. And I found that blueberries didn't cause me to crave more blueberries in the same way that gummy worms caused me to crave more gummy worms. There was this 
probably it's the sugar content that's, you know, fires off the dopamine and says, keep doing more, keep doing that again, keep doing that again. Whereas if you get something like blueberries where they have more of a, a natural level of a content of sugar, you know, natural levels there, but they also have the fiber and all the other aspects of a, of a kind of a whole food. And the key here was when I was paying attention where I just wanted to eat something, one led me to want to eat more and the other led me to be satisfied and not overeating. But the difference that you might be talking about here is that act of doing something in order to have a result. That can be an addictive behavior despite what, you know, despite the food itself. So you could overeat, like you're saying, tomatoes, blueberries, things like that. It could be that act that could be the addictive thing itself as compared to the food. Does that make sense? Definitely. It's more the behavior than the actual way that I'm, I guess, numbing, numbing whatever emotion I'm feeling. It's, it's less about the actual food for me. And it's interesting you mentioned the word numbing because I had a patient with binge eating disorder. So this is kind of a behavioral addiction, so to speak, uh, around food, where she had been doing this for about 20 years, where she, when she came to me, she would eat, uh, she described that she would eat entire large pizzas in a single sitting, 20 out of 30 days a month. And what she described was she said, I eat to numb myself from negative emotions. So any habit is formed through uh, basically three elements, a trigger, a behavior, and a reward. So for her, the trigger was a negative emotion. The behavior was binging on pizza. And the reward, literally, what she said was, I, I would eat to numb myself. So it was, the, it was the act of numbing more than the pizza. Yes. And I think many people with weight struggles would say that it's the act of feeling that caused, it's the act of feeling uncomfortable emotions. It's not the act. It's the idea of feeling uncomfortable emotions that drives the behavior to eat foods that they don't really want to be eating. Right. Or amounts of foods, right? Because it could be blueberries, which are healthy, good for your brain. But you know, a pound of blueberries, perhaps not so much. Exactly. The stomach is not happy when that, when, <laughs> when that happens. So I want to talk about a little bit about the idea of cravings. When, when someone craves something, you talk about the idea that a little dopamine spritz happens in the mind. When you're craving something or fantasizing about the pizza, you're already getting some sort of reward for it. Can you share what's going on mentally when somebody is actually fantasizing about the food they're going to eat later or when they're at that place, they're going to have that meal or tonight we're going to have fill in the blank, whatever it is for you. I feel like anybody, anybody who's struggling with food control, it's something that we deal with where we're, where we plot these ideas and these meals, I mean, call them what they are, they're fantasies of these, of the way we're going to indulge. What's the payoff there? Well, this goes back to our basic survival mechanisms in the brain, which are actually relatively simple and the strongest learning mechanisms known in all of science, like this is how we survive. So if you think of that trigger behavior reward process, that process happens as a way to help us remember where food is. So back before there were refrigerators and our ancient ancestors had to go forage for food, they would have to go out every day and then have to remember where the food was so they could go out the next day and find it. So let's say somebody's foraging, they find the food, there's the trigger, they eat the food, there's the behavior, and then the reward, quote unquote reward, because this is a neuroscientific reward, 
is that their stomach sends this dopamine signal to their brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. So they get a dopamine spritz when they when something unexpected happens. So it's, you think of it as our brains are like digital cameras that don't have a large uh, memory card, okay? So you can't just be walking around the savannah taking random pictures. You have to save your, save your memory space or the film and, and old school cameras. You only get 36 pictures in a roll, for example, or 12 in a roll, right? So you have to, you have to be careful and judicious in what pictures to take. So our brains, they're not just firing off dopamine randomly. They're firing dopamine when we get this reward, when it says, oh, this is important. Remember this, okay? So that happens until we learn the source. And when we can go back there, the dopamine shifts in its firing. It doesn't fire when we eat the food. It fires in anticipation of eating. And that drive says, go get out of the cave and go get the food. So the fantasy that you're talking about here is we have this thought, for example, of food, there's the trigger. And then we start thinking, oh yeah, that could be, boy, I can't wait to eat the pizza or whatever. That anticipation is what fires the, causes the dopamine firing. And that gets us off our butt to go get it. You know, it's a motivating factor at that point. This fills in the blank where I, there's a store here where I go sometimes to get food and there's like, you know, once in a while I'll, I'll indulge and I'll have like, you know, oat cookies or something that's like, I, I don't usually eat. And then when I go back to the store, especially the days right after, it's, I'm always, I feel a pull towards that area in the store. <laughs> it says, oh, the cookies were over there. <laughs> and the next time I'm actually purchasing something that I don't really want to be eating, like long term, that's not on my program or whatever the way I eat. I'm like, you know what? If I actually eat this, I'm going to, every time I walk past this aisle for the next month, it's going to be, I'm going to be supercharged where I'm going to be having to use willpower to pull myself away from this item, fill in the blank, cookies. So I've actually, it's, I didn't know that was happening, but that's, that's really, that answers that question for me personally. So, yep. That's your caveman brain hard at work, helping you survive, kind of, because <laughs> it's not really helping you survive with the cookies. Not anymore. So, so what's the payoff of, of that now, that system that we have where we're having this imprint from this digital camera? It's helping us learn habits. So habits in general are helpful for survival. So imagine having to relearn everything every day, right? From getting out of bed, walking, putting on your clothes, learning how to talk, learning how to make your food, learning how to make coffee. You know, you'd be exhausted by the end of breakfast. So this learning mechanism is set up to help us learn habits. I think of it as set and forget. You set a habit down and then you forget about the details. And in fact, this has layers. There's a layer on top of this, of not just learning how to tie our shoes, but it also helps us make decisions. So it helps us lay down the reward value of how valuable a behavior is so that we don't have to relearn that every day so that when we're faced with decisions, we can quickly make a decision. So for example, our ancient brains, if presented the choice between cookies, use an example of cookies. So cookies and broccoli, our caveman brain says, oh, cookies have more calories, eat that. Because it's got a higher reward value in our brain because it, it laid it down that way. Oh, that's rewarding. Remember where those cookies are, go back to that aisle. You probably don't remember where the broccoli aisle is nearly as much as you do <laughs> with the cookie aisle. I actually buy a lot of broccoli, so. Oh, there you go. <laughs> 
But your caveman brain would prefer the cookie aisle, is my guess. Uh, it, it, there's definitely more of a charge when I pass the cookie aisle than the broccoli aisle. That's for sure. It's like, oh, broccoli. It's like, it's a very neutral charge. Yeah, because it's, it doesn't have the dopamine. It's not associated with that dopamine hit of like getting a bunch of sugar. So this is really, it's laid down to help us learn habits, one. And two, it helps us make decisions quickly so that we don't have to spend all of our day constantly making decisions. Got it. So let's talk about anxiety a little bit. I know this is an area where obviously you have a lot of personal experience and your, your latest book is about this. And I'm curious, from, your, from seeing patients and your experience, what have you seen as a common thread for these types of cravings and compulsions around particularly food? The common thread that I learned, and I only learned it in the last five years because I hadn't learned this in medical school or residency, was that anxiety can actually be driven in the same way as other habits and addictions. And I did not know that. This was uh, research that was first done back in the 1980s. But the focus that I had learned in medical school and residency was give people medications. Ironically, <laughs> the medications, it takes, there's this thing in medicine called the number needed to treat, which gives us a rough sense of how well something works. It's how many people you need to give a certain treatment before one person shows a significant reduction in symptoms. And for medications, that number needed to treat is 5.15, meaning I need to treat five people before one person shows a significant benefit. So here I was basically playing the medication lottery because I didn't know which of my five patients that I saw in a day in that next stretch of time was going to benefit. And also I didn't know what I was going to do with the other four. So here my own anxiety and some other uh, factors led me to look back at the literature to figure out what was actually happening. And that's where I started learning. There's actually a pretty solid literature suggesting that anxiety is driven in the same way as other habits. How do you define anxiety from a, from a medical perspective? I like simple definitions. So the simple definition that I like is feeling of nervousness, worry, or unease about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. I like that. Worrying about something that's unknown that you can't control, that you don't have control over. Yeah, you can think of it as basically a fear of the unknown or a fear of the future, or you know, basically intolerance of uncertainty is a is a scientific term that people have around this. You know, it's like, oh, that's uncertain. Our brains don't like uncertainty, and if they can't control things, then we start to freak out and think of all the worst case scenarios. Yeah, I can definitely remember times eating for that reason, eating because I feel anxious. I guess in your practice, have you seen anybody who's dealt with anxiety and in a not so good relationship with food? It's pretty common, actually. And this is what led me to develop our unwinding anxiety program and actually study it was we had developed this eating program called Eat Right Now. And somebody was mapping out her habit loop around eating. It was stress eating. And she said, you know, I realize that anxiety drives a lot of my eating. Can you make a program for that? And so that's when I went back and found that, oh, anxiety could actually be driven in the same way. But relating to somebody with both, I, I'm actually thinking of a patient. I write a little bit about him in my book who was referred to me for anxiety. And this gentleman walked in the door of my office. He looked anxious. So check. <laughs> and he also was about 180 pounds overweight. And we sat down and I started taking his history and he described how he would get panic attacks uh, when he was driving, where he would have these thoughts that he was, I think he put it, I'm, I'm in a speeding bullet. And then that would freak him out so much that he 
eventually stopped driving on the highway and he was even getting nervous driving to my office on the local road. So, you know, if we map this out, the, his trigger was he'd have these anxious thoughts. His behavior was to avoid driving on the highway. And then the results or the reward was that, you know, he didn't have those thoughts. He didn't get those panic attacks. And yet his, he had developed full-blown panic disorder and was really, it was severely limiting how he lived his life because he really couldn't drive very far. And by the way, he was also, he ate a lot. And so what I did was I, I had him, I gave him our unwinding anxiety app and I had him do one thing. I said, you know, go home. And for the next two weeks, just map out your habit loops around anxiety. And so he said, okay, I'll try it. And he came back two weeks later. And the first thing he said to me, he said, hey, doc, I lost 14 pounds. And I looked at him because I was thinking, did we even talk about weight loss? Because I was going to save that for later. You know, I wanted to focus on his anxiety. So I said, well, what, what's going on? And he said, I was mapping out those habit loops. And I realized that anxiety was leading me to eat. And that that eating wasn't actually helping my anxiety. So I stopped doing it. He ended up losing, you know, going on to lose over 100 pounds. And it, it sounds like the awareness of his anxiety was just, that was enough. So one thing that I'm really excited about is to see the simplicity of the neuroscience and understanding how our minds work can really help with not just working with anxiety, but working with any habit. And that's actually the whole point of my new Unwinding Anxiety book is around this simple notion that awareness is all we need to change habits, whether it's anxiety or any other habit. So we need to become aware of a habit loop. Like I talked about with my patient, we need to map out the trigger, the behavior, the result. But we also need to tap into this reward value system in our brain because our brain is going to keep doing a habit until it sees very clearly that that behavior is not rewarding, right? Because it lays down this reward value and says, oh, that's good, just do it again. But if we bring awareness in, we can see, oh, that's not quite as good as I remembered. So for example, with my patient, he paid attention to stress eating and he realized, oh, it's not getting me anything. And he became disenchanted with it. And that disenchantment is really the key driver for changing any habit. And one of the, one of the things that you talk about which I really like um, in your work is the idea of curiosity and the power of that. It's, it's the simplest thing. It's kind of the awareness, like you have the awareness and then also the curiosity. Can you talk to that a bit, just with the power of that and how that actually works with the brain? Sure. So I think of there can be this attitudinal component related to awareness. So we can be aware of something and we can be judging it and be like, oh, yeah, I see that and it sucks or... <laughs> I see that and I like it, you know, so we hold on to certain things. We push away other things. Awareness is there, but there's this attitude that's got an agenda. With curiosity, we're kind of going in agenda free where we're just trying to see things really clearly. It's like, oh, that's happening. Okay, let's see what's true here. That curiosity does two things. One is it helps our brain see really clearly exactly how rewarding something is because our brain's going to try to convince us that something's good. So for example, you know, if it's cookies, our brain's like, oh, eat the cookie. And we're like, well, it wasn't that great last time. Everyone's like, nah, forget that. It's, it's good. Just eat it. So our brain tries to bias us, especially the more, the more dopamine involvement that there is, the more our brain tries to convince us like, this is the thing to do, right? Because we're so driven. A curiosity helps us kind of put all of those biases away and see things clearly. The other thing it does is it becomes 
what I call, and I have a whole section on the book on this called the bigger, better offer, right? So if we see how unrewarding our old behaviors are, our brain's going to say, okay, give me something better. And what, what this suggests is that curiosity is that bigger, better offer. It's not only always available because it's something that we all can tap into, but it's more rewarding than whatever you know, the other thing is. So for example, my lab has done studies showing that anxiety feels worse than curiosity and craving feels worse than curiosity. And so if we just compare the two head to head and say, you know, do I want to be craving? How's craving feel? Well, how does curiosity feel? Curiosity wins every time. It's really powerful. I've, I've been experiencing that myself um, since trying it. It feels really good. And your, your app Eat Right Now, also the idea, like one thing I really love about it is the piece where you can actually help somebody feel the way they would feel if they had the cookie, the pizza, whatever, before they actually eat it. Anytime I, I have over eight, each bite is, what's the word I'm looking for? It's less rewarding, right? There's a diminishing returns. Dim there it is, diminishing returns, right? So there's a diminishing returns every bite. So for the first cookie, when I had these, when I had these cookies, actually, that was actually that happened not so long ago, a month ago. I had the cookies right in town here. And I said, you know, this weekend, five O cookies. I earned it. You're working. You had a great run here. Let's have five O cookies. And it's not unhealthy, but I like to keep it really tight with food. So the first one was great. Second one was good. Third one was okay. And the fourth one, I was like, oh my gosh, I feel like I just need a nap. <laughs> yeah. And uh, what I like about your app is like, you can help somebody actually get to the nap without having the four cookies. I think it's really powerful. Well, that's one piece that we've specifically researched because that is the secret sauce. Because what it does is it, you know, we've got this craving tool, right? Built into the app that says, ask people to imagine eating the craved food, for example. So imagine eating the cookies. And what that does is it brings up our previous memories of what it was like last time, which basically brings up the reward value. And if it's still, if we're still enamored with it, the next step is to say, go ahead and eat. And then we pay attention as we eat. And then as you are doing, we can see really clearly, oh, fourth cookie, not so good, which updates that reward value so that the next time we crave those cookies, we can come in and we can imagine doing it without doing it. And so that disenchantment kicks in without us having to actually do it. That's reward value change in action. At that point, is that where you think about the bigger, better offer? So we can certainly bring the bigger, better offer in. Sometimes just the disenchantment is enough because not eating feels better than eating or you know, eating three cookies feels better than eating four cookies. And so we just have to remember the bigger, better offer is three, not four, or maybe one, not three. I can relate to the bigger, better offer where someone's like, wait, you're not going to go to the party and eat, you know, fill in the blank. Like you're not going to eat the pizza, cake, whatever it is. And I'm like, I'm not. I'd rather actually just feel like, all my energy and not have to, you know, so it feels like the bigger, better offer would be that I go to this dinner party and I feel amazing. I don't feel like crap. Do, am I understanding the bigger, better offer, right? Absolutely. So it's a switch off. And, and this comes, I think this question comes up for a lot of people who are dieting or, or trying to live a healthy lifestyle or have to have some restrictions around food just because of the environment that we live in today. And it's like, well, I'm sacrificing so much. I'm giving up so much of my life because I want to live this way. I just have to let myself go. And it's, it is this bigger, better offer idea where you're actually saying, I'm not going to eat this way because of everything else that I get to have, the life I got to live because 
I'm not eating that way. And I think when you think about it from that lens, it, you're asking yourself, well, hey, which one do I want to, which one do I want to have? They're both going to be some sort of fight. I, I'm not, fight's not a great word, but I don't know. I don't know if there's a better word. Well, I would suggest that we don't even have to fight because if we tap into this reward system in our brain, our brain's going to naturally pick what's more rewarding. So if not overeating is more rewarding, which typically people see, it, it feels, you know, we feel more content when we don't overeat and we don't feel guilty and we're not, you know, feeling like we need a nap. That is more rewarding to the point where if we can just recall it and remember it consistently, then our brain's going to naturally pick that because it's more rewarding. So there's no fight there. It's very different than the willpower-based uh, approach. Yeah, the willpower-based approach is... Is it is actually diminishing returns, right? Yes. You start off with a full tank of a full tank of gas with willpower, and then as the day goes on, you have less and less gas in your tank, and then at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the tank is tank is empty, right? So I'm curious, what else you've learned with all the work that you've done? Uh, you know, scanning brains and the fMRI machines and getting these results that allowed you to build these products that are helping so many people. I'm curious, what other things you've I've been able to identify for somebody who's um, who's struggling right now, who feels like they're kind of stuck in that in that cycle of addiction. One thing that we've noticed from bringing together the brain scans that we've done is that there's a network of brain regions that gets activated when people get caught up in a craving. And the same network gets activated when people get caught up in anxiety. And so that's that quality of getting caught up in experience, whether it's anxiety whether it's uh, craving for food, whether it's craving for nicotine, all of these activate this brain region. And from a pragmatic perspective, there's this feeling that we all can tap into, which is that closed down or contracted feeling that comes with craving. And that seems to be correlated with activation in this brain region. And the reason I say this is that we can find ways to uh, let go or, or uncontract or unwind. And the ways to do this, we've already talked about one of them, is to bring curiosity in because the feeling of anxiety or the feeling of a craving feels contracted. The feeling of curiosity feels more open and expanded because we're, we're curious. Oh, as compared to, oh, no, you can't be contracted and expanded at the same time. So if you inject some expansion into the space of contraction, we naturally start to unwind. And so... There are pragmatic lessons from these neuroimaging studies suggesting that we can actually focus in on that feeling of contraction. Oh, what's leading to this so that we can start to map that out. We can then focus in on that bigger, better offer of, say, curiosity and play with it. Oh, what's it like when I get curious instead of getting caught up in this craving? Oh, not only does it feel better in the moment, but it can actually help me step out of this habit loop. Oh, that's helpful. And the repetition of it is really what will help somebody get good at it. You know, one of the things I think I used to let myself down on a lot is if I had the awareness, I would then immediately, if I still ate the thing, I lost, right? I still failed, so to speak. But I think like measuring self by, was I curious? And if I ate it after, I ate it after. Like that's completely fine, but I'm strengthening the muscle of actually being, being aware, being curious of what of what exactly is happening. Right. And even if we eat, we can be curious in that moment. And we can, I think of this as bowing to it as a teacher. 
oh, I'm eating the cookie. What can I learn from this, right? Where we can build up these disenchantment data banks, as, as one of our instructors likes to put it. As we start to pay attention and as we see, oh, I'm eating that third cookie, what am I getting from this? It actually helps us learn from the experience as compared to turning away from it or saying, oh, I failed. And it's like, oh, I can learn something. And so that the next time it's easier, we've got more information to work with. So the other piece there is that the curiosity itself just is this wellspring. It builds on itself. So the more curious we get, the more we see how rewarding it is, the better it feels and the more we want to do it. I will mention one thing because we're, we're talking about these, you know, unwinding these loops. The patient that I mentioned, you know, who had lost over 100 pounds, he had been so identified with his anxiety. So let's, you know, we can talk about, well, it seems like this might be hard to do or it could take a long time to change these habits. I'll mention a couple of things. One is that in one of our recent studies, it actually only took 10 to 15 times of somebody paying attention as they overate for that reward value to drop below zero. So below zero, meaning they start to shift that behavior. So it doesn't take a lot. It just takes some, a lot of awareness, but it doesn't take a lot of time to change a habit. The other thing I'll mention is when people really bring awareness in, it can significantly change their clinical outcomes. So for example, we did a, a randomized control trial, people with generalized anxiety disorder with our Unwinding Anxiety app, and we got a 67% reduction in clinically validated anxiety scores. And I think I mentioned earlier this number needed to treat, right? How many people you need to treat before one person shows a significant benefit. With medications, that's 5.15. In this study, we only needed to treat 1.6 people before one person showed a significant benefit. So we're seeing much stronger effects, let's say, than I had been seeing with medications. The last thing, just to bring this home on a personal level, my patient who'd, you know, who'd lost over 100 pounds, he'd been identified with anxiety for about 30 years to the point where when he started having significant periods of time where he wasn't anxious, <laughs> that seemed kind of strange to him because it was such a new phenomenon. And by the, after about five or six months of really just mapping out how his mind worked using curiosity to bring awareness in and stepping out of those habit loops. I remember I was at the uh, teaching a class at the School of Public Health at Brown University, which is in uh, Providence, Rhode Island. It's on Main Street. And I was walking out of class one day onto the sidewalk and this car pulls up. This guy rolls down his window and it's my patient. And I looked at him and I'm like, oh, you're driving. And he goes, oh yeah, hey, Dr. Judd, I'm an Uber driver not. I'm headed to the airport to pick somebody up. So I thought that was pretty remarkable. That is amazing. What, what, I'm just curious, what did that feel like for you when you saw that? Oh, it's just almost brought tears to my eyes. You know, it's like, wow, if somebody can go from full-blown panic disorder around driving to becoming an Uber driver, you know, there is hope for all of us. <laughs> With your tendency to overthink, is there a non-negotiable habit that, or something that you do to keep you in check to make sure that doesn't spiral out of control? I think the non-negotiable habit for me is curiosity. And in fact, it's not something that I have to bargain with myself to do because it is so rewarding. It just seems to get stronger and stronger every day. Every time I can pay attention and see that curiosity helps me, 
you know, not get caught up in an idea or not get in an argument that's not going to go anywhere or not get caught up in, you know, like trashing somebody's scientific premise and actually listen to it. It just keeps feeding forward. It pays it forward. It feels better every, every, every day. What are some bad recommendations that you hear about addiction? I would say the number one on my list is willpower, that it's a failure of somebody's moral character or a failure of their willpower. If they would just get a hold of themselves, then they could stop you know, drinking or using drugs or whatever. So willpower, as you highlighted earlier, at best, it's the weakest part of our brain. And it's the first that goes offline when we get stressed or anxious, which are the number one precipitants to relapse. So here I would say it's not about willpower. It's really about tapping into the power of our brain, which is all about rewards, as we've talked about. So last question for you, and then I want to talk about a few other things before I wrap up. But what is one area of your life where you are feeling full in right now? I'm actually in a very good space where I'm feeling full in general. So I would say everything where I, and to be specific, I'm so blessed to know how my mind works because that has affected everything that I do. Just in terms of knowing my own mind, that's something that anybody can learn. And that has helped me just, I think, be able to live a much happier and healthier life. Having a clear mind is such a gift. It's something that I aspire to. So thank you for sharing. So your book, Craving Mind and Unwinding Anxiety, your latest book, I'm obsessed with Craving Mind just because I think that relates my mind. I feels like I'm always craving something. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely would recommend uh, that one. And if you're struggling with anxiety, can you just tell, a little, tell us a little bit about your, your Unwinding Anxiety book? Sure. So it's set up in a, in a three-step process. And I think we've covered largely these three steps, but I'll just kind of summarize them. The first step is helping somebody understand how their mind works and mapping out those habit loops. And the second step is helping them tap into this reward value piece. You and I have talked about that concretely around seeing, you know, that fourth cookie just doesn't taste as good as the third cookie and helping us become disenchanted. That's what opens up the door for the third step, which I think of as the bigger, better offer. And curiosity just is one of my favorite bigger, better offers because it's, it's always available. It doesn't become habituated. If we don't, if we're like, where's my curiosity? We can get curious. Oh, why am I not curious? And then we're curious, you know, in that moment. So the book is really set up in that way. It explains the science, but really it's set up as a pragmatic guide for somebody to be able to implement these three steps in their lives, whether it's anxiety or any other habit loop, procrastination, stress eating, you know, even beating ourselves up as a habit loop. I totally agree with that and think that learning these skills are definitely beneficial for our lives. And I just want to thank you for, for writing these books because your work has been so profound already in my life. And I feel like I'm just getting to know you over the last few months. So it's been really rewarding. So if you're somebody who's struggling with anxiety, food addiction, or anything like that, I highly recommend getting familiar with Dr. Judd's work. For you, Dr. Judd, is there anything else do you want to leave people listening with? I would just say, you know, stay curious. Build that curiosity muscle. I love this quote. I think it was James Stevens, who is an Irish author and poet, who said that, you know, curiosity will conquer fear even more than bravery will. So 
anything that scares us, you know, we can we can bring in some curiosity as a superpower. Awesome. Hey, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been really great talking to you and I'm really stoked for the work you're doing and all the people who get to benefit from it. That was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's it for us today, friends. Thanks for listening. Do you know someone who's struggling right now? If they could use some support, please share this episode with them. If you want to keep in touch, subscribe wherever you get your podcast or sign up to my weekly emails at feelingfull.com, where I unpack what I'm learning about weight loss and share ways we can all live healthier, more fulfilling lives. Take care, be well, and feel full.